0: to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and Josh, that's not
1: how you introduce a podcast. You got to beast it. Beast it, Josh. Beast it. Beast it. Uh-huh. Beast it. Okay. But are you done?
0: Beast no, it. You're not done. I was waiting for other people to join That's in, not going to happen. Did. Beast it,
1: Josh. <laughs> Beast it. See? Beast I don't it.
0: Think that isn't even really relevant <laughs> to what we're talking about. I don't think that's what they do in this film, which is. <laughs> I mean, it's an entire
1: scene in the film. What are you is talking it? Oh, about? Oh, man. Is he... When she's pulling apart the crab. And he, oh, and yeah, right. Dad gets yeah, up. Right.
0: Like, no. Man, this... No, hush puppy. Beast this it. This is such a forgettable film <laughs> that I already forgot about that scene. <laughs> Ah, boo to you. This is a good movie. What is this movie? Well, uh, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we are talking about the films of 2012. And we are here at the Sundance Film Festival Grand Jury Prize winner. And it's the film Beasts of the Southern Wild from director and co-writer Ben Zeitlin. Or Zeitlin? Zeitlin, probably. I think it's Zeitlin. Yeah, you're right. Uh,
1: Beasts of the Southern Wild. So you give it some emphasis just because you didn't like it, Josh. Don't take the audience out of no, it. No, no. It's a
0: wonderful film. It's many people agree with you that it's a wonderful film, and uh, it, including, of course, the Sundance Film Festival, where it won that award, the Grand Jury Prize for Drama, as well as the Dramatic Excellence in Cinematography Award at, uh, at Sundance. It was a huge film festival favorite in 2012, um, a bunch of festivals and awards, including the Camera Door at the Cannes Film Festival, which is the award for the best first feature. This is, of course, the directorial debut feature from Ben Zeitlin. And uh, it went on to gross $23.3 million on its budget of $1.8 million, which is quite a good amount, I think, for a movie like this, that whether you like it or you don't like it is clearly not like a mainstream kind of film. Yeah, I mean, it had all that buzz and, and everything.
1: Josh, at Cannes, also won the Fripleski Prize, which we've talked about, which is given out from French critics to someone who is making a contribution to international cinema. It won the Ecumenical Jury Prize, which is the Catholic Jury Prize. And it won the Prix regard which I don't know what that is to you.
0: Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, it might be um, the uh, award for like a... Youth performance of some kind. Is it wow. Jeun, J-E-U-N? Jeune? J E U N? J E U N. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means young in French. So, oh,
1: well, she won a lot of awards, yes. uh, Quavanzana Wallace. Also, Josh, Independent Spirit Award for Best Cinematography. Ben Richardson, who I think deserved it. The cinematography is amazing in here. And of course, Oscar nominations Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actress for Zene Wallace, who was nine at the time. Uh, the youngest Best Actress nominee, and at the same time, Josh, as we've
0: talked about in more,
1: the oldest Best Actress nominee ever in the same category.
0: Yeah, they were a uh, interesting competition there, and we did talk about that in our episode on more. and I think, do they both still hold that record? Did we talk about that? I can't remember now, but probably. Let's say it is. I
1: think so for best actress, maybe not for support right, yeah. but for best actress.
0: Yeah. yeah. Some of the other so. categories I think have different uh different record holders there, but for that one. Yeah. So And just just to put it out there, Argo won Best Picture, we know
1: that, and that will be coming up this season. Ang Lee won Best Director for Life High. Jennifer Lawrence won Best Actress for Silver Lining's Playbook, and Argo won best adapted screenplay. All more deserving than this film, I think. Man, this guy's just crushing me. Josh, here's one that I have a question for <laughs> you. Yes. Because I thought that Dwight Henry was amazing in this movie. Uh-huh. And he's the you know the dad, who yells beast it. And uh, he did not get a nomination for an Oscar, but I thought he should have for Supporting Actor. Who would you take out, Josh? Christoph Waltz won for Django. We're leaving him in. Alan Arkin for Argo. Robert De Niro, Silver Linings Playbook. Philip Seymour Hoffman, The Master. And Tommy Lee Jones, Lincoln.
0: Well... Obviously, I would not take out any of them because I didn't care for this movie particularly. And I i, I mean, I suppose Dwight Henry was fine. I found the character kind of grating, but uh, I honestly don't even remember Tommy Lee Jones in Lincoln. So maybe if I had to take one of those out, I would take him out. But I, I don't want to replace any of those people with this guy. Dave, let's do the podcast without talking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, being, I'm being very negative. I, I didn't hate this movie or anything, but this is a movie... That as as a lot of the reviews mentioned that uh, whether they were positive or negative, I think this is one of those movies that because of the life cycle of it, and this happens a lot, you know, it premiered at Sundance at the beginning of the year, and it built this uh, massive amount of acclaim and buzz, leading going all the way through these other film festivals, and then into its major release, and then into all these awards, is that it gets a backlash over time, and so by the time it had a wide release to general audiences. Um, a lot of reviews mention that there was this backlash, to this movie, or that it was a divisive movie. So, um, I, I mean, I think that was sort of the, the environment in which I saw it first, because of course I didn't get to see it until it was generally released to here in Las Vegas, whenever that was many, many months after Sundance. And, and so this is, it's a movie that a lot of people had strong positive or negative reactions to.
1: Yeah, so we're actually dealing with that right now. Obviously, uh, at the time of recording everything everywhere all at once, just one best picture a few weeks ago. And there is a backlash against that. Some of it probably valid, some of it just pure racism, like your backlash against of <laughs> Southern Wild. Well,
0: some of the backlash against this movie might have accused the film itself of being not if not racist, maybe racially uh, questionable. But um, I don't have any of that, actually, in reviews. Um, most, most critics still, despite that potential divisiveness or the backlash, most critics were very positive about this film. I mean, some, some extraordinarily positive, really. Um, so Roger Ebert was one of those. He said, You can make Beasts of the Southern Wild into an allegory of anything you want. It is far too detailed and specific to fit easily into general terms. The bathtub, which is where the film takes place, Is this place, in this time, and how can it stand for anything else? This film is a remarkable creation, imagining a self-reliant community without the safety nets of the industrialized world. This movie is a fantasy in many ways, but the authenticity and directness of the untrained actors make it effortlessly convincing. Sometimes miraculous films come into being, made by people you've never heard of, starring unknown faces, blindsiding you with creative genius. Beasts of the Southern Wild is one of the year's best films. And
1: I agree with
0: Roger Eberts. Well, you are in good company there, certainly. Yeah.
1: But where do we know critic for Las Vegas Weekly? <laughs> yes. I um, did not agree with him then or now. Josh, here's the point to me that stood out there is that authenticity. I when I watch this movie, I'm like, man, Zeitlin must be a native of Louisiana, whether it's New Orleans or somewhere else, you must know this community incredibly well. And it is true that he moved to New Orleans, but he's a native New Yorker. And I thought, like, what an accomplishment to get such authenticity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some of the criticism of this movie involved the idea of the non-authenticity, the idea that this was this sort of New York hipster guy who came to New Orleans and decided to use poor you know, displaced people from Hurricane Katrina as tools for his filmmaking. And I I don't necessarily agree with that criticism, um, but that was something that some people felt about this film. I I think he does, as much as it's possible for someone who's an outsider, uh, capture the authenticity of community here. And he obviously made a big effort. He didn't bring in a bunch of New York actors or anything. He made a big effort to incorporate the actual community into his filmmaking. And I think that does come across. Uh, Yeah, I mean, look, so let me first give you
1: a quote from Dwight Henry about him being cast. And then I want to take on that point a little more. Henry said, I was in Hurricane Katrina and neck high water. I have an inside understanding for what this movie is about. I brought a passion to the part that an outside actor had never seen a storm or been in a flood or faced losing everything could have had yeah, I was two years old when Hurricane Betsy hit New Orleans and my parents had to put me up on the roof of the house. An outsider couldn't have brought that passion to the role that I did. So I agree with you. He's using uh, people who have experienced it, who have done it, uh, who have been there. But I also think anyone is allowed to tell any story. And if you kind of work hard
0: and care about it, you can craft something that is Authentic. Yeah, I mean, and I think whether I, whether I like the movie or not, I'm I'm not going to say that Ben Zeitlin didn't care about Hurricane Katrina, didn't care about the people of New Orleans. I mean, you wouldn't put in the effort involved in making this movie with no guarantee, obviously, that it's going to become the success that it did if you didn't care about the subject matter, about the place and about the people. So my my, my issues with the movie are not about that, per se.
1: Well, not just this movie, as you know, his uh, film Glory at Sea, the short film that I think uh, I I think we all watched it for prepping for yeah. this deals with deals with a lot of the same issues. So um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, kind of equity that he has into into telling these. this
0: story. Right. And that preceded this. That's from is it 2008, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not the same plot as Beasts of the Southern Wild, but it's very, very similar in tone. And it has another uh, young young girl character who's the narrator of it, like Hush Puppy, Covengenet uh, Wallace's character is in Beasts of the Southern Wild. and it has that sort of magical realist tone dealing with the hurricane with these sort of fantastical elements as well. Yeah, and the the
1: narration it shares a the character, Sergeant Major, um, you know, those kind of. Uh, uh, DIY boats to float down which uh, <clears throat> in Beasts and Southern Wild I love the one where they like uh, uh, kind of
0: modified a uh, pickup truck
1: and used it as a boat to float down the uh, the water
0: yeah down. these creations in this place the bathtub where the characters all live which is sort of an a island I guess off the coast of New Orleans um, all of their dwellings their vehicles everything that exists in this place is sort of cobbled together from detritus or whatever. And so I, I don't know how much of that was pre-existing and how much of that the filmmakers themselves built. But I mean, set design is another thing here that you have to say is quite impressive either way. Just the fact that they could use all of that stuff to to create this fantastical world that that seems completely alien. Yeah, you feel like you're there, yes.
1: right? And you feel like you're watching something that is there. And uh um Right. I don't know if it's an island or a parish, but it is definitely surrounded
0: by water there in some
1: type. Of right. Well,
0: I believe a piece of land surrounded entirely by water is called an island. But
1: I don't I I understand that. I'm just saying I don't know if it's completely surrounded or
0: if it's just like a, a gully or a peninsula. Right. I don't know. I got it. the impression Maybe that an, it was
1: com- could be an isthmus. It could be.
0: I got the impression <laughs> that know? it was completely surrounded, <laughs> that in order to get off that, get a, get away from the, the bathtub, you had to go through the water or no matter what. But yeah, it's not entirely. There's no detailed exposition in this movie. Certainly, that's not what this movie is about. Do you want to explain what a fjord is to us now? I I don't. But, um, you know, we did just talk about Scandinavia. So got that going. Um, Ty Burr in the Boston Globe was even more positive than Roger Ebert. He said, here is why some of us love the movies. They let you see with brand new eyes. Not all the time, and not even often. Usually, the eyes are tired or cynical or cowed by the need to turn a profit. They let us see only what we're used to seeing in a film, not what it's possible to see. And it takes a very special sensibility to try to see something impossible. Beasts of the Southern Wild is that miracle. A movie that shows us an entire new continent unexpectedly close to home. I'm not sure how anything in this movie actually came to be and I'm afraid that knowing would break the spell. I just know that Beasts of the Southern Wild is the first movie in a long time to feel like the first movie ever made. Hmm. Well, I don't know about all that. <laughs> but,
1: uh, it feels like a movie made exactly of the time and place that it's from. and I think that's part of the relevance of it. Uh, you know, I bust Dave's chops on uh, piecing it together sometimes about him saying that he wants to go visit some of these places that uh, are in the movies, uh, which is a, you know, a valid way to uh, tour the world. So to speak, Dave, did you, when watching this, did you want to go to the bathtub? Oh no, no, no,
0: no. Bathtub seems like a horrible place that I would never want to visit. And I think that's one of my issues with the film is that these people are meant to be like the, the sort of folk heroes. And I'm like, these are all idiots who are living in squalor when they have no reason to mm-hmm. uh, i don't know about that
1: i mean they're poor so how do you how do you get out of that you well, know they're, they're offered the, the chance to
0: get out of it i mean it, even the shelter as unpleasant as it could potentially be it really doesn't seem that unpleasant honestly and it's it, anything is better than the bathtub i'm gonna disagree
1: the shelter seems very unpleasant you know there's you could see it's corded off and like you have this little space. I have this little space. No one's actually getting anything done that they're supposed to get done. Uh, I think you're, you know, not, there's nothing wrong with taking pride in your home, buddy. Uh,
0: yeah, there's nothing wrong with taking pride in your home. But when your home is uninhabitable and potentially deadly, then you leave your home. I'm sorry. I think you can. You Yes, that is an argument. If you are going to die there. you And that's be- what is the case <laughs> for these people. Some of them do die. Uh, so I did want to get a negative perspective. So um, Michael Phillips in the Chicago. Did you just quote yourself? I could just quote myself because I did write a review of it, but but I have not. I've been resisting that. I could have done that in like virtually every episode this season, and I have not. So I'm going to quote someone else. This is Michael Phillips in the Chicago Tribune. He said, that look, the ambience, clearly is slaying a good percentage of those responding to Beasts of the Southern Wild. The filmmaker comes from a perspective of great empathy and considerable skill. But he's a pile driver as a dramatist. The film's screw-tightening methods are so overbearing. The story, the characters, the little girl's plight have to struggle to breathe or develop anything like an inner life. The movie is an eyeful. The cinematographer Ben Richardson is a serious comer. But even with the great, good efforts of Quivenjene Wallace, the results, to some of us, betray a distrustworthy slickness reminiscent of a British Petroleum oil spill cleanup commercial.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, You know, on the uh, first day of shooting, I got this fact, Josh, uh, the BP oil rig explosion uh, happened outside of New Orleans, and Zeitlin and the crew had to kind of figure
0: out how to shoot around that. So it literally
1: did have something to do with an oil spill. Right,
0: well, I mean, I imagine that that's probably why he mentions it because it was something that was in the news at the time and the idea that this is, and this is something that I got out of this movie is that you watch it and it, you can say like, wow, this is so lyrical and poetic and beautiful. And yet to me, almost every single thing that the characters say was utterly meaningless. It's like, it sounds beautiful, but it doesn't say anything.
1: I think that's just a lack of understanding of the culture, Josh. Okay. I got to take you on a trip to New Orleans.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm unlike Dave in that I never want to travel anywhere that is in movies <laughs> or in life. So I probably will not end up in New Orleans anytime soon. All right. <laughs> um, it's a, it's
1: a great city uh, with a, it's full of passion and spirit, mm-hmm.
0: delicious food and excellent music. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's wonderful. I, I, Sure, it would be pleasant to travel to New Orleans, not to the bathtub though. But, um, Jason, did you see this when it came out? I didn't see it when it came out. I saw it shortly
1: thereafter on whatever video platform it came out. Yeah. And did you like it at that time? Yeah. And I think I like it just as much this time. So we're in a fight.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't like it. As I said, I think maybe I was part of this backlash that by the time I got to it, I mean, although this would be the case for you too, if you saw it later, you know, it had already been so built up that, um, I don't know, I found it a disappointment and I thought maybe coming to it now with no longer in that circumstance, I might like it a little more, but I still just found it honestly, like I, I didn't have the level of negativity that some of the people had as part of that backlash, but I, I just found it so dull. And like, like I said, you know, talking about that scene that you were mentioning earlier, which I did remember once you started describing it, but it, otherwise nothing about this movie like sticks in my mind in any way. So hopefully I'll have some more things to say about it. <laughs> yeah. Dave. Because if you don't, then, you know, it's just me
1: talking for now, yeah.
0: <laughs> which I can, I do. know you can, Yeah, you, know, you can maybe come up with some, some philosophical, musings about the nature of uh storms or whatever um, Ooh, music! yeah that's what all that's good for a that's podcast. what's going on in this film lots of musings
2: um, yeah that's true
0: dave did you see this when it came out
2: yeah not like right when it came out but also like once it made its way to vegas but uh yeah i i feel like i have like a lot of the same problems with it that josh does but it's just all so pretty that i still enjoyed the movie quite a bit you know there's still a lot there to to like about it. And I felt the same way back then as I do now.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is pretty. And I like I said, I didn't want to discount, you know, the set design or however they put that all together is is quite impressive. The cinematography does look really good. That was shot, I think, is on 16 millimeter film. And it's it's one of those things where you think as you're watching it, like, oh, this must have been just some scrappy little troop that had a four person crew and put this film together. But. As, as we noted, it had a budget of nearly $2 million. It was developed at the Sundance Institute. And just watching the credits, there's a huge amount of people involved. So it was actually, you know, is quite a large, uh, it's not a blockbuster special effects action movie, but it's quite a large effort to put something like this together. You're saying it didn't remind you of our uh,
1: 1953 fear and desire episode where Kubrick just kind of
0: Found uh, workers to just help them out when, when they weren't in the fields. Yeah, I mean, it kind of did remind me of that as I was watching it. And then afterwards, I realized that that's not the case at all, that it was a real large, professional, you know, decent scale production, which is totally like is not a criticism or or a positive either way. It was just a surprise to me. Yeah, well. Josh, I can't wait till we come back in the next segment and
1: you just crush six-year-old Ravon Zane Wallace.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll see how that goes. We'll we'll come back (laughs) and talk about our general thoughts on Beasts of the Southern Wild. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this episode of our season on the films of 2012. We are talking about Sundance Grand Jury Prize winner Beasts of the Southern Wild. And uh, Jason, just before the break, said that I was going to tear apart little Quivonjene Wallace, who was uh, six, is it six years old, I think, is the time that they made this film? Yeah. Auditioned when she was five. And uh, was nine by the time she was nominated for an Oscar. It's a long process there. But um, I, I, you know... As an actor, I think she clearly does what the movie is asking of her to do. So, I don't know that she deserved to be nominated for an Oscar, but we've certainly seen movies with child actors that I found more irritating, I think.
1: I think she's charismatic. You know, she she, you know, has to carry a movie here and there is that authenticity to her. I was reading that Zeitlin just like the fact that like at, in an audition they asked her to, like throw something at another actor and she said she wouldn't do it cuz it was mean and that you know all the all these things like she could burp on command they put into the movie i think you're seeing uh you know uh obviously the director kind of helps create the performance but i think what you're seeing is a, a really good performance i i liked the not just her but like i said i liked Dwight Henry i liked that these people felt real to me
0: yeah, I guess. I mean, they're all non-professional actors. Uh, I mean, the rest of the cast as well. There aren't really any other distinctive characters with arcs or or presences really other than Hush Puppy, which is Quvenzane Wallace's character and her father Wink played by Dwight Henry, but they all they're all sort of like local color. I feel like the other actors in this film are equivalent to like the 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 buildings and the these you know ramshackle huts and things that we're talking about is it's all just sort of like uh background in a way there's not they feel real but they also don't feel like people to me i
1: i get what you're saying i i just i guess i like that local color enough where i mean even the names i wrote down Myth, miss bath giba walrus little joe john baptiste peter t sergeant major i just liked how Real that all felt to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, and we should say, though, that like plot wise, this movie is not realistic, which I think is part of maybe the tension that to me is frustrating, that the bathtub itself is presented in this this sort of mythical way that as you start watching the movie, if you don't know that it's set outside New Orleans and it's a response to what happened in Hurricane Katrina you might initially assume that this is, you know, some kind of post-apocalypse sci-fi thing or some sort of like fantasy world, a magical place or whatever. And as the movie goes on, you get that it's this allegory. And, and at least in, in one segment where they go to the, like, FEMA, you know, uh, shelter or whatever, it's not even an allegory. It's just a direct story about what the kinds of things that happened during this. Um, but There's there's all of these fantastical elements, the title, you know, the beasts themselves, the aurochs or whatever, who are these like giant hog looking things that have been, I guess, sort of released from the melting ice caps, which we see in some stock footage. Is that is that what you feel like was going on there, Jason? I just thought it was
1: meant to showcase, uh, you know, that nature can both be kind and cruel and it just kind of, you know, their speed um kind of ramped up as uh wink was getting sicker. this idea of like that they prey on sick animals and that the environment was sick personally i didn't that was probably the least effective part of the movie for me i didn't need any of that like i'm not saying it was bad but i just think like it was just there like i i didn't need
0: those little interludes of uh the running uh boar type creatures right whatever whatever they are and and you know the payoff for them i think is pretty underwhelming it looks cool you know it's one of those scenes where this is still a low budget film especially in terms of of special effects and you see hush puppy confronting these giant boar like creatures and and it, it looks it looks good like they they put it together well but after we spent the entire movie with these periodic cutaways to these beasts slowly making their way toward the bathtub, what happens when they get there is is like nothing and it's, there's no payoff to it. I agree with that. I'm, I, I uh, see Josh. I can criticize too. Of course. Of course. And I can, I can be positive too about this. Like, I mean, I didn't, I didn't hate it. And, I think it does have a, a lovely look. I think it's also just incredibly repetitive, you know, watching that short film, which is 25 minutes long I, I th- and is essentially the same tone and, and kind of plot as this film. I thought I can take this for 25 minutes and not be frustrated with the sort of elliptical meaninglessness of the dialogue and the narration and the very insistent music or whatever that wants you to feel something. And just kind of be swept up in it briefly, and then it's over. And then maybe when it's over after 25 minutes, I think, okay, I don't know. That didn't really, there wasn't anything to it, but it was kind of a nice experience. But to sit there for 90 minutes really felt tedious to me.
1: And I felt the opposite. I felt that this was more developed, had a better pacing and tone. Like I felt this was an upgrade from that, which is what you want in you know, going from short to feature. Josh, Ben Richardson really kicked ass here as the cinematographer.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it does have a really a good look to it. And that's not one of the nominations that it got at the Oscars. Um, I don't know if that's surprising or not, per se, if he was considered to be in the running. But yeah, I mean, I would say those kind of technical aspects of it were more impressive to me than the narrative or the characters or the themes and it just isn't enough for me to hold on to. Again, I feel like if this had been like a music video, you know, if this had been some New Orleans jazz band or whatever, playing a, a cool song for three minutes with images of this, I would have thought, beautiful. I loved it. But <laughs> to try and care about Hush Puppy and her awful dad and whether he's gonna die. And, and like I said, I mean, maybe it's cool of me, but to me, like the whole time I was just thinking these people are idiots and I don't care about the bathtub and I just think they should all leave because you know the the idea of them and this is the sort of potentially condescending aspect of it is that they're treated almost like these these noble savages you know who have this more pure way of life and it's like no they're just they're just living in squalor for no reason and I kind of didn't like these people and I didn't want the bathtub to be saved or preserved
1: I just think you're simplifying it too much. Like, what do you expect if they had gone to the FEMA tent and relocated? What is their future? Well,
0: it's not to say that they have like a wonderful future or whatever. It's a terrible situation with no good outcome. But I can't see how staying in the bathtub is the good outcome. I mean, the place has been ruined. It's been destroyed. It's sad that it's been destroyed, but you can't stay there anymore right
1: the the land is dead. they they do have to move on from that at some point. i I also want to say, I don't think that Wink was an awful father. There's clearly mental illness there that's not being treated that maybe he doesn't even recognize. so it it makes it a more complicated relationship than just saying it's a he's a bad dad. I mean, he can be both
0: mentally ill and a bad dad. He could be uh i I don't know if I agree with you on that, yeah. I mean, he's, he's volatile, he's borderline abusive. And he, if he is having, he's clearly having physical health problems, which he refuses to get treated. And if he's having mental health issues, he's not trying to become a a better father to his daughter. He's not trying to address his own problems in order to take care of his daughter in a better way.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, Josh, because I feel like normally we would be in opposite positions. Like I would be dropping hammers on these people (laughs) and you would be defending them. But here, Josh, you just have no sympathy for anyone. So Dave, did you like this movie? You had to like the music. The music's great.
2: Oh, music's fantastic. And like I already said, it looks so beautiful. I mean, cinematography, production design, set design. But I agree about Wink. Like, I don't think he's a good father. And I think that... The, that's my biggest problem with the movie is that it kind of presents these people as like these heroes for for sticking with this situation. And yeah, it's a bad situation leaving too, but this is clearly a really really bad situation already, you know. And that, that that's well, I guess, that's my problem, I guess.
1: I guess my question is, right, like you know, we know that that Hush Puppy's mom is
0: is dead, right? I thought she mm. just left. Like she
2: I thought she was dead.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not entirely clear, but to me, I thought she like couldn't, you know, she, maybe she was smart and she realized that living in the bathtub wasn't a good deal, but you know, or, or perhaps that she wasn't, uh, equipped to be a parent and kind of abandoned the family.
1: It's possible that that was the case. My point is we have no, uh, kind of hint that there is other family for them to go to, you know, we know that Wink, has basically spent his life there in the bathtub. That's what I think is implied. So like, I mean, you know, here's a, here's a man probably in his forties who spent his whole life there, who was just surviving. Right? Like, I don't know what you expect for them to be like, yeah, I can pick up and I can move and I can do this. It doesn't seem like that's really in place for them.
2: Yeah. And I I think that that's why the whole magical realism like approach to this is the right thing to do because clearly this director doesn't have an answer. Like nobody has an answer. So it's like, let's make something beautiful out of it, you know, even though it's terrible all around.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem is that Jason is that you're not wrong about this situation from the perspective of the characters, but I think the duty of a filmmaker is to present it to the audience in a way that you can understand it you can empathize. And I never empathized with these characters. And that's the fault of Ben Zeitlin. You know, that's not. Yeah, uh, I did. And I did, though.
1: Yeah. Now, Josh, we didn't mention uh, the co-writer here, Lucy Alibar. Uh, This is based on a one act play called Juicy and Delicious. Um, And since then, she's gone on to write uh, Troop Zero, which I enjoyed, but I don't really remember. Kind of Similar in this like southern uh, pocket, you know, very unique setting, and then she wrote "Where the Crawdads Sing," which was a surprise hit. But I mean, I'll, obviously, you have to talk about like, you know, I felt like these characters, at least the lead two, were fleshed out in ways, and and I wanted to see their story. But you you feel like it was a fail for both.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I mean, they're fleshed out more than the other characters, who, like I said, are basically not even people. They're just sort of like background noise or whatever. Um, but no, I didn't care about them. I wonder how it, I mean, I don't know how similar this is to the play. That's not something that we had access to, uh, unlike Ben Zeitlin's previous short film. Given that the short film is so similar to this, and that's something that he just wrote on his own, I would have to imagine that the play maybe has been adapted more, that it's it's been changed more so that it's his style rather than his style adapted toward what's in the play, but I I can't say for sure. Also, the fact that it's a one-act play means I'm sure it's shorter than 90 minutes, and that's probably the right amount of time to spend with these people.
1: I mean, again, I think, again, you're being a little uh, over generalization there with that, because there have been plenty of short stories and one-act plays
0: that have worked as uh, features. Oh, right. And there absolutely have. I'm just saying that in this case, the, the material, to me, does not support a feature film.
1: I laughed when, after the flood, uh, when uh, Wink and Hush Puppy were out in their makeshift boat and they go to the bar, and I believe it's Walrus steps out of the bar and falls right into the flooded water. That was an amusing <laughs>
0: shot. Yes, that me. was an amusing shot. And again, one of those things where you have to think about how did they set this all up? Did they deliberately like submerge this thing? Like. It's something that looks very homemade, but if you think about it for more than a few minutes, clearly involved, must have involved a huge amount of logistical effort. And like the fact that I'm thinking about that as I watch a movie is not good for the movie, like narratively, but is what I found interesting.
1: Well, and with that, maybe we should talk a little about the sequence where the kids escape from the FEMA uh, school and end up first on like a, a, a trawler and then end up on this like poorhouse barge. And that was an interesting sequence.
0: Yeah, it was. Although I feel like from the point that they end up going to the FEMA shelter, uh, it really feels like that to me is where I'm like, man, they're really padding this out to make this a feature film. They've left the bathtub. Fair. You know, the bathtub is such a distinctive place. That's where we're immersed or we should be immersed as an audience. And now we're in this like partially lit, you know, warehouse kind of place. and then, right. so that that weird, I don't know, was it a was it just like a strip club or something? There's no there's no nudity or anything. I think it was a horror, okay. house. yeah. whatever yeah. it is, there's these these sort of paint, painted ladies, I guess who are there. And Hush Puppy finds this woman who is not her mother, but she seems to sort of want to be like a surrogate mother of, of some kind. yeah,
1: she's getting she's getting a source of love that she hasn't had that that, you know, she said, like, you know, I could stay here or something like that, or whatever it is. She, she was clearly feeling that something was right before she had to, you know, decided she had to go back and take care of her own, as she says. So, um, I just want to say, Josh, um, the thing with the bathtub is like dated, they were forced to leave. Right. So like story wise, I get, I understand why that's important. I, I agree with you. I was more interested in the bathtub setting, but They were ripped from it and had to get back there. And I think that makes sense from a movie standpoint. So I think we're just on different pages here. If you want to rate this thing
0: out of, uh, you know, five, five crab dinners, (laughs) I'm down to do it. Did that did that crab dinner, Jason, as a foodie, did that look appealing to you?
1: I mean, I'm not a fan of it that way, but, you know, just kind of. A lot of people say the best way is you just catch them and eat them fresh like that. And obviously in the Bayou, that's a that's a huge thing. So but also, I should say, not in my defense, in the opposite of my defense, I have a very hard time opening crab when I eat them anyway. So I'm not right for that. um, Yeah, well, I couldn't beast it or do it (laughs) the other way.
0: I was just wondering, because to me, it looked like disgusting. And I wasn't sure if it was meant to be sort of grotesque. And, uh, you know, and I'm someone who, you know, is extremely picky with food. So sometimes I look at gourmet food and I think that would make me gag, but people love it. So I just wasn't sure how I should have taken that scene.
1: No, I think I think that's just a lack of uh, knowledge. And I'm not insulting you just in that area. Like people love, you know, to go out, catch crab eat them, crawfish, whatever,
0: however it is, you can eat them all fresh like that. Yeah. All right. Well, you can. I mean, I'm sure they were boiled or whatever. One would hope, at least in reality, if not in the context of the narrative. Crab boiled, baby. All right. So five crab dinners, Jason,
1: how do you rate this? I give it three and a half and I'm going to continue to fight the good fight against you on this one.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to give it two and a half. Like I said, I didn't hate it, even though I've been really down on it. I, I feel like it's a Visually distinctive boar, so it's got something going for it. Though. Boar, BO Oh yeah, it's hey. a boar full of boars, is what it is. <laughs> Dave, how would you rate this?
2: I'm going three and a half, and oh. uh, yeah, there's there's plenty to like here, even if I had some issues with it.
0: Yeah, all right, fair enough. We'll uh, come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of beasts of the southern wild. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2012, we have been talking about the Sundance Grand Jury Prize winner, Beasts of the Southern Wild. And to me, what was interesting about this legacy-wise, for a movie that, that was such a huge sensation at all these festivals, was nominated for four Oscars, which I forgot that it had been so heavily awarded. I feel like the main legacy of this movie, whether people liked it or not, is that no one remembers it anymore? This is a completely the legacy of this movie is nothing. I feel like again, I think you're being too hard on it. I
1: remembered it. Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess I, I and I'm not saying that as a as a qualitative judgment of the movie. Even I just feel like a movie that was this heavily awarded and acclaimed should have had more of a cultural impact.
1: Well, look at uh, look at some of the Sundance winners we've covered in the past that we had to dig up. Right. Like maybe that's just a trend of some of these. Winners.
0: Well, yeah, that's true for movies that win at Sundance and then don't go on to do anything. But that's not what happened here. This movie again, I feel like any movie that's nominated for best picture and three other Oscars should have a bigger cultural footprint than this film.
1: Do you think part of that is uh, Zeitlin did, has only done one movie since, which was Wendy, which is Again, playing with similar themes here, but in a much less effective way. Uh did either of you guys watch that? I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's a it's a real come down off of this one, but it's, you know, kids, magic realism, unique setting. Uh it's a retelling of Peter Pan, and I don't think it's nearly as effective. Though Scarlet. Was, well, that's good. So and we don't see anything else that he's got in development. And it's interesting because he was this is a piece that definitely has a vision from a director right and you're kind of like you think like there might be more coming but do you think part of the reason that as you say it's forgotten is that we haven't seen more from zeitlin and we don't know when we will yeah
0: i think so and i don't know why it is it it was eight years later that he made that film so it wasn't even like a quick follow-up that people thought oh he was so great and now we're disappointed with his next thing that he did right away it took him all that time and i don't know why that is i mean i would have to think that if you make a movie that's this successful that there are offers and opportunities that come in to make other films and i don't know if maybe he was just such a purist that he only wanted to make a film with his particular vision and maybe that wasn't what he was being offered the chance to do i don't know why it took him that long to make that other movie but but yeah totally i think you're absolutely right is that it was such a distinctive kind of film that you would, I'm sure people who love this movie would have been excited to see more from him. And by the time he got around to it, maybe they had moved on.
1: I'm just, you know, he did so much, like we talked about him and Romer doing the music together. So I thought, oh, maybe he's doing music, but I couldn't find anything on that. Like, you know, his company is called Court 13. And it's this like loose association of filmmakers. So you thought, oh, okay, maybe they're like, building this indie empire, but I don't really see anything on him anywhere at this point in
0: time. Yeah. I don't know what he's been doing. I mean, I assume he makes a living some way. I can't imagine that the beasts of the Southern wild money is sustaining him still at this point. So I don't know. I mean, maybe he's teaching his parents. I think we're both
1: like artist academics, and I, I don't know either. I will say Dan Romer did the music for station 11, which I thought was really awesome and kind of fits in with this tone. And, uh, also he, as we keep talking about on this show, uh, extrapolations now on Apple TV, he did the music there. As
0: yeah. Well. And I feel like station 11 and I, I know Jason, you've watched all of it and I haven't yet, but I have liked what I've watched is the kind of thing where it seems like the sort of project that someone like this could have gone on to, right. Where it's a more polished, yes. you know, mainstream kind of story, but it deals with the, the magical realism and similar kinds of themes about displacement and disaster and i don't know why ben zeitlin never got the chance or agreed to you know a larger kind of project like that i don't either um he would have been great for that i think you're
1: right but um that that was a great project anyway so um ben richardson has gone on to do some cool things wind river mayor of east town and
0: as a DP and I believe he's like DP directing all these Yellowstone spinoffs now. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. And certainly like, that's what you expect. Something like this, that, that, uh, you know, gets such a claim that it, it allows those people opportunities. Um, well, Wallace, of course, was the real breakout of this getting that Oscar <sighs> nomination. And she did uh, have some pretty big roles as a child star. The main one being as the title character in the remake of Annie, which is not good. I do not recommend. Um, I have not seen that, but she did get a Golden Globe nomination. Whatever Golden Globes. Um, And she's continued to work. I mean, she's only, I think, maybe like 19 or something like now. So she's still pretty young, but has gone on to more adult roles. She's a regular on the Apple TV Plus show Swagger, which I have not watched. And she was on American Horror Stories recently. So she's continuing her career. I feel like she's the one here who's managed to have a, a more sustained career. She
1: also has released multiple children's books, and her up, she's in the upcoming Project Breathe, which is another one of these kind of apocalyptic uh, hellscape movies. Air supply is scarce in the near future, forcing a mother and daughter to fight to survive when two strangers arrive desperate for an oxygenated
0: haven. Yeah, I can't imagine why there's so many apocalyptic narratives being made right now. What would that be about? <laughs> so It's so wild. Especially environmental
1: apocalypses, yeah. Josh. Uh, both she and Dwight Henry appeared in Twelve Years a Slave. Dwight Henry owns the Buttermilk Drop Bakery and Cafe in New Orleans and is supposed
0: to play Marvin Gaye Sr. in
1: Sexual Healing, the Marvin. Gaye.
0: Yeah, and he has a handful of credits as an actor, but clearly is mainly interested in uh, his, you know, bakery, which which good for him. Yeah, you know? that's right. Cool. And I think most so. of these people, you know, they're not the other people in this film. They weren't trying to pursue acting careers or whatever. It's not like this was, it was just kind of a cool thing to do to appear in a film and then went back to whatever their regular lives were.
1: Yeah. I will say Levy Easterly, who I believe played what Walrus in this one was also in Wendy. I was trying to look for the actors who were in both where he played the, uh, basically the Captain Hook character. Oh yeah. There you go.
0: Um, We, you Jason, you talked about Lucy Alibar, the, the, co-writer whose play this was based on. She's continued to write plays and novels and uh, did write the screenplay for Troop Zero, which was based on one of her stage plays. And I thought you would would like that movie, Jason. Is it not great? I I did
1: like it. I just, at this point, I mean, that was like one of those pandemic movies about like a little Girl Scout troop, I believe, or a Girl Scout troop who's like, maybe not as um, financially well off as some of the other troops around. and. I liked it. I just don't really remember it.
0: Yeah. Point. Well, something that's forgettable seems to be her mo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Big hit when the crawdads.
0: Yeah. Passed. Dave, year, didn't you Josh. see that?
2: I did. Yeah. That's. Nah. All right. Nobody liked no. that,
0: but nah. it was a huge hit. Oh, somebody liked it. No, no critics or film film geeks no. liked it, but the people liked it, Jason. The people. Yes.
1: Power to the people, Josh. Whether in the bathtub, New Orleans, or elsewhere. Totally. So uh, I, I, anything else on the legacy of this film you want to talk about? I mean, the fact that you
0: didn't like it is a delight to me. <laughs> so let's move on with our All lives, right. Josh. Well, I'm glad that I've delighted you then. <laughs> that is Beasts of the Southern Wild. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can find us online and on social media. Yeah, come and beast us online, guys. No, don't do that. Uh
1: we're at com. It's awesome movie year on uh <laughs> Facebook and Instagram, awesome movie pod on Twitter. And I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the things. You can check out my new website, eatthiscomedy.com. My old website, GoForJason, is uh is lost and boars are eating it, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but uh I am GoForJason on uh letterbox, so that's a thing, Josh. That is a thing.
0: Uh, My website also kind of lost, joshbellhateseverything.com. I am at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together.
2: Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod.
0: And Jason, what is in our next episode?
1: Josh, are we doing Best Picture We are. Well, I've already mentioned it, Josh. It's Argo, Ben Affleck, coming back. Our second episode on a Ben Affleck-directed
0: film. Yeah, Ben Affleck joining a rarefied collection of filmmakers here on Awesome Movie Year. So tune in next time for Argo, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow
2: Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
0: An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.